Please remain standing, if you will. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. So Genesis chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 17. We've got some fun names in here today, but this is nothing compared to what's coming. In Genesis 5, you can peek ahead. Uh, Clayton's going to be preaching next Sunday, but the week after that, we'll pick up in Genesis 5. And um, you just be gracious to me. I'm going to butcher some names. Let's just let's go with it. Uh, Genesis 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and to Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. I practiced all this, and I'm still butchering it. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, to, to Seth also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, would you give us eyes to see, help us to understand, do the work, Lord, you're the only one who can do it, to pierce our hearts so that this would not just be an activity that we go through, that this would not just be a time that we consider facts and history, but that you would truly penetrate our hearts with the good news of the gospel today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So last week we looked at the murder of Abel by Cain, and we saw there the the reaction that Cain had toward God's correction, how God came to him before the sin and did some preventative Uh, almost parenting with him, saying, you know, you have a choice that's in front of you, but sin is crouching at the door, and Cain hardened his heart, and he went forward, and he he murdered his brother Abel. And then God came to him in judgment and uh, pronounced on him both a a curse and judgment, and Cain continued to harden his heart. We saw the difference that Cain went in the direction of hardening his heart further, as opposed to Adam and Eve, for example, when they sinned, um, they said what they did. God came to them. They said they ate the fruit. Now, they blamed everybody else. We, we kind of chuckled how they, they literally covered everyone they knew in blame. But they acknowledged their sin. And there are aspects that we see following their uh, banishment from the garden, that there was faith on their part. We continue to see that today. Cain, on the other hand, writhed in self-pity. He acted like he was the victim. You remember that? How he, act, he, he thought that God was somehow too hard on him after he murdered 
his brother. And so what today, what, what Moses is doing and in, in what we're looking at today is he's unfolding the line of Cain. He's doing it to seven generations. And in Hebrew uh, language and thought, seven is the idea of completeness. So Moses is giving us a complete snapshot of Cain's line. And then the story of Cain ends there. And then he gives us a snapshot of Seth's line. The snapshot is much shorter in, in, in chapter 4. Chapter 5 is much longer. He's going to expand and go into that. And, of course, if we go to the genealogies in the Gospels, where do we see the line of Jesus traced back toward? All the way here, uh, to the line of Seth, to the line of Adam. So we see the effects of sin. We see the hardening of the heart, how it works its way. The sins of a father work its way through the generations. That when we don't listen to what God has said, when we don't respond to his correction, that part of his judgment, and this is what we see today, is that God turns us over to our own desires. He, he, he lets us have what we think that we want. Uh, we think what we want is what we really want until we get it and we realize how damaging it is. We've all, I'm sure in this room, lived long enough to have experienced those things, that you get on the other side of something and realize this is not what I wanted at all. It sounds a little bit like forbidden fruit. It looks so good. Uh, and then you realize what you've got is not at all what you wanted. And this is the way God's law works. It protects us. What do we do with that often, though? We turn it into some kind of, God doesn't want us to have any fun. God doesn't want us to have a good life. He gives us all of these do's and don'ts uh, as if that's what the law of God is. But the law of God is right and pure and good for us. And if you have followed Christ for any length of time, you have come to realize this over and over again, that God's law is faithful, that it really does protect us. It really does lead us closer to him. It really is for our good. So in Cain's line, we see one way to live, that is following his heart. We hear that in our culture, don't we? Follow your heart. Be, you know, believe in yourself. Uh, my kids grew up, uh, I mean, they're still growing up, but you know, in the younger years, they grew up in that time where that was everything that they heard in public school was just believe in yourself. And they would always get frustrated at me when I would, I would make fun of it because I would start singing, I believe I can fly. Yeah, every time they heard that. Like, okay, fine, I want you to be confident people. I don't want you to, 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 to writhe around with a lack of confidence. But don't think that just believing in yourself is going to make something come true. There's always going to be somebody faster than you. There's always going to be someone smarter than you. There's always going to be somebody prettier than you. And deep down inside, you know that you're not the best. So what we do and what our culture does now to young people is actually we, we, uh, we trip them up with this because they know, they know that they're not, but they're told to believe that they are. Cain is an example of in believing in yourself. Another statement we hear in our culture is, listen to your heart. Cain listened to his heart. Cain listened to his heart. He, he was mad at God, got mad at his brother. God came and corrected him. Cain continued to listen to his heart. He listened to his heart, and he walked right into the sin of murder. And then his generations that followed him are an example of what happens when that sin is compounded. Listening to our hearts leads us into further and further sin. So those are the two ways that I want us to consider, the two ways to live that are before us today that we'll see in these two uh, lines. Another thing to remember, 
in God's economy, the, uh, the way that we see things that we think they should happen don't always happen the way that we think that they should. For example, Cain is the firstborn. God had promised the woman a deliverer, and her seed would be a deliverer. Do you think that Adam and Eve thought for a moment it could have been Cain? I imagine that they did. Did they think it was going to be thousands of years before the Redeemer would come? I don't think they imagined it would be that long. Was it Cain who would be the deliverer? No. Would it be his line? No. Would it be Abel's line? No. Now Abel's dead. Cain's a murderer. Where's my help going to come from? Was God's plan thwarted? No. He had another plan. It wasn't Adam and Eve's plan. It was his plan. And he brought the redeeming line through the line of Seth. The same is true with Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the firstborn. Esau, Jacob. Esau should have had the entire line. Think of David. Right? David wasn't the secondborn. He wasn't the thirdborn. He was all the way at the end. In a sense, the runt of the litter. He wasn't even considered by his own father as worthy to be crowned king. And when Samuel came and said, it's none of these guys. You have any other son? Well, yeah, well, the youngest. He's out in the fields watching the sheep. Bring him. There's your king. There's David. God's economy is not our economy. God often works in a way that doesn't make sense to us. It's upside down. It's backwards. It, it, it doesn't make sense. And, and it's, it's for a reason. It's for a reason that he says the weak are made strong. The, the last will be first. The cross is foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To live is Christ. To die is gain. These are things that don't comprehend. They don't plug in for us. Isaiah 54.1 says, Sing, O barren, barren one who did not bear. Hear, hear what he's saying. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. How do you make sense of that one? 2 Corinthians 8, 10, or, or 6, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, We're treated as impostors, and yet we're true. As unknown, and yet well known. As dying, and behold, we live. As punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. That is a lesson on kingdom economics right there. That's how the kingdom works. It doesn't make sense to our mind's eye. Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. How do you make sense of that? The point that I want us to remember today as we consider these two ways to live is that the kingdom is not about at all about us making sense of it. The kingdom is all about Jesus. And the point of God doing all of this is that Jesus gets glorified because he actually accomplishes what we're striving to do. He actually accomplishes it all for us. We get the help, he gets the glory. So kingdom economics, it doesn't plug into spreadsheets. It doesn't look good on PowerPoint. We can't always predict what will happen next. But the reason is this way we trust in Jesus and he is magnified. So God doesn't always pick the apparent winner, the firstborn, the one that we would pick, the one who is tall and mighty. And if you're self-righteous, this makes you mad. 
let's be honest right now, just inside our own hearts, we're all self-righteous, and all of us get mad at this about this time from time to time. We may not right now in church because we know we're not supposed to, but we do this. There is that little legalist inside of every one of us that does this, that we see somebody else get something that we thought we deserved, or we get something that we don't think we deserved. Or we've worked for something that we did. We do this all the time. We treat God as if the economics of the kingdom is a tit for tat, like an even exchange. Like, I've done my thing now. What are you doing this to me for? And that's not the way the kingdom works at all. But when we come to the point where we're trusting in Christ alone, this kingdom economics just shines glory. It's marvelous. It's wonderful because we know that deep down inside, we're all beggars coming to the table, begging for something that we didn't deserve and getting way more than we could ever imagine or want. So looking first then at the line of Cain in verse 17 here, uh, the first thing we see, these, these uh, generations that Moses lays out, uh, but the first thing we, we, that comes to our mind, it says Cain's married, right? There's seven generations here. Does anybody want to ask the obvious question? It's been asked all so many times before, right? Where did Cain get his wife? Uh, yeah. This is a tough one. Let's just skip that and keep going. Um, let me say this, that unfortunately many secularists have used this to trip up Christians. And maybe somebody has done that to you or you felt tripped up by it before. Uh, let me make a parenthetical statement and then we'll, we'll jump into what the answer is. Secular evolutionists don't have an answer for this either. I mean, if you think about it, unless you had simultaneous cross-species evolution, you would still have to come, everyone would have to come from one, whoever, whatever evolved, right? You would have to have multiple evolutions at the same exact time for there to be multiple people to mate and create the human offspring. So there's no answer there in secular evolution. But a lot of times that's what happens with these gotcha questions, People come at us with gotcha questions and we're so befuddled by the question that we can't think that they have any better of an answer. The answer is very, very simple. Cain married his sister. His sister or his niece. Cain married a close relative. And for us, that's repulsive. But let me help us understand it just a little bit better in terms of why this maybe wasn't such a big deal. In Genesis 5, verse 4, we, we read that Adam and Eve had other children, other sons and daughters, which would have been necessary for the world to be populated. Very practically, the only way for the world to be populated was for them to do exactly what God told them to do, be fruitful and multiply, to have other children. That's exactly what they did. There was no moral prohibition for siblings to marry at this point. And partly, at least, part of the reason why it wasn't necessary was that the genetic code was not as impacted by sin as it is now, or even 2,500 years after creation. If you think about it, and there's a lot of questions I'm going to leave us with today. We don't have time to answer all the questions, but if you think about it, Why did these initial ancestors live nearly a 1,000 years? Yeah, You have two ways of explaining that. Either they had a different way of measuring time, or they simply had much better bodies. And if 
Adam and Eve were created in perfection and indeed had every genetic makeup for perfection in their genetic code, then it would make sense that over time, once sin entered the world, I mean, Adam and Eve didn't, they weren't killed instantly, right? Sin enters the world, the effects of sin begins to permeate out. Then it would make sense then over time that those genetic mistakes and the effects of sin would begin to create problems. And so 2,500 years later when the Mosaic Law is given, God says, don't let siblings marry. Because he knows his law is good, he knows that that is needed to be given to protect them from mistakes, from genetic mistakes that would occur. So this is a hard question. And it still makes us feel uncomfortable. Nobody feels any better about that today. But a lot of this, of course, is cultural. Let me give you two other things to consider. One, Paul said that we all came from one man. You remember when we went through Acts in his sermon at the Areopagus in Athens, he said, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So we understand biblically that we all came from Adam. But spiritually, there are some connections, too, that begin, be, begin to be undone if we try and explain this away. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, in Romans 5, Paul makes connections between the first Adam and the second Adam. Do you remember that kind of language we've seen before? First Adam, second Adam. First Adam being Adam in Genesis, second Adam being Christ, the one who came to fulfill all that Adam didn't do and uh, to, uh, to redeem him from his sins. Well, if you start to say God created other people over here or he brought them in on a spaceship or any other kind of explanation to who, where Cain got his wife from, then you come at the gospel with that. You begin to create problems then for what Paul is teaching about federal headship, both of the first and second Adam. So while it, it is hard for us to think about this, this is very reasonable for what happened. And yet, even in what happened, God had created provision for it to work. In other words, it wasn't a problem for God to have created Adam and Eve and to have, had to have expected them to, to, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, knowing that that would have, had to hap- would have had to have happened for that to continue, that there would have been um, uh, marriage and sibling and so forth, close family relations. Okay. So we move on through the time. The time here is very compressed. Moses is giving us a snapshot of the generations. Lots of history in here that we don't have the details on. But what's important for us to keep in mind when we come to places like this, including genealogies, and I know all of you are just thrilled in your personal devotions when you come to a genealogy, right? You know, it's your reading in the morning, one eye open, trying not to fall asleep because, Lord, what am I supposed to get out of this? Well, hopefully we can begin to see that slowing down a little bit, there is some things, there are some things rather here for us to learn, even through the lives of these people. The first thing we see that Cain named his son Enoch. And then he did something after that. He named the city that he built Enoch. And we look at that and we think, well, that's not a problem. We name things that we want to honor or things that we want to celebrate. The problem is Cain never softened his heart. He never repented. And so every act that we see recorded of him, if we understand it in the idea that he was hard in his heart, we can see that these are actually acts of defiance against God. He, in in, in essence, is saying, God, I'm accomplishing things on my own. You said I was going to be a wanderer? Look, I built a city. Now, what's interesting is the word for city here just simply means fortified, 
and it can represent a large city, but it can also represent a very small city, anything with a wall around it, basically a house or two, could be used to describe the same word. So there's no indication that it's this vast city that he built. But he was hard in his heart, and he wanted to show God what he had done. I imagine, uh, and this is just, this is not biblical, this is just Seth's imagination, but you remember the old Wild West towns that had, uh, that, was, that were just full of fear. You, know, you had the one bad guy that ran the town. And what often happened is in towns like that, it's not just in the West, it happens everywhere, uh, but we remember movies about this where the town just goes downhill. There's no flourishing because there's fear and there's no law. And so you have buildings, but they're all run down. There's people, but they all stay inside and hide because of fear. That's kind of the picture I think that we can have of the city of Enoch because it was dominated by fear. And all of this is made very, very, it's personified, the fear is personified in the person of Lamech because we look at his poem that he wrote and we see exactly that, this bad guy from the Wild West movie who has no regard for law and order and who takes everything into his hand. But before we get into the poem that he wrote, I want to mention one other thing, and that is, what is Lamech? Notice what he did that was a little different from everybody else? He got two wives, didn't he? Here comes polygamy. Now, a lot of times when we come to to challenging passages like this, people think, well, the Bible records polygamy, and it doesn't say in the next verse after it that it's a sin, so God, you know, allows polygamy or whatever. Simply because the Bible records something and doesn't point out every time that, and by the way, this was sin, this is true with all kinds of sexual sins, this is true with slavery, a number of other things that the Bible records in narrative fashion doesn't any less undo what the Bible says in other passages that this is wrong. And God had established very early on in chapter 2 of Genesis what marriage was. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is what marriage is. So Lamech is discarding this. He's thinking, he's following his own heart. He's thinking, if I enjoy one wife, I'll enjoy two wives even more. And so he goes after, he believes in himself, he goes after his wants and his lusts and his desires, and he marries two women. But look at how he treats them. Look at what the text says about uh, what this does for him and for them. Um, the, the, the murderous desire here uh, in uh, verse 23, Ada and Zilha, hear my voice. You wise of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. We're going to look at that a little bit more in just a second, but that is a murderous threat against who? Yeah, his wives. It's against women. I mean, this guy is, uh, you know, all, all the bigot, misogynist, all the bad words we can think of to throw against. I mean, this guy is using and abusing his wives. And so there's no regard for them. There's no beauty in the marriage. This is what sin does. This is where sin takes us. That's what Moses wants us to see in this way to live, that when we listen to our hearts, when we follow our lusts, when we do what we want, when we have uh, no regard for what God has said, the result is this. This is the snapshot of it. Now, before we, we, we unpack that any further, you, you may say, well, Seth, there's some good things in here. Uh, there's, some, there's some positive things. There's technology, there's art, there's music, and that's true. 
Um, there are some technical developments. There's a movement from farming and, uh, and caring for sheep to uh, metal work to musical instruments, good things. These are good things. They're gifts from God. It isn't as if one line, and by the way, polygamy shows up in the other line as well. We'll eventually see that. It wasn't that one line was perfect and one line was completely corrupt. I mean, thank God that we're not completely as bad as we can be. (laughs) Look at that two ways. There's also potential for us to be much worse than we are, which is a good warning. But it's the fact that one is pursuing itself and the other is pursuing God. That's the two ways to live. Those are the two lines. But these are good things here technology, and the arts. The problem is technology and the arts can't save you. Culture, humanities, all wonderful things, they can't save you. They can't fix what is broken in you. They can be enjoyed. Sometimes they pacify, but they cannot redeem. Matthew Henry, I've mentioned him before. He's one of those uh, old dead guys that has lots of writing stuff that's uh, not copyrighted, so you can get all this stuff free, which is really nice. Uh, he writes that worldly things are the only things that carnal, wicked people set their hearts upon and are most ingenuous and industrious about. So it was with the impious race of cursed Cain. Here was a father of shepherds and a father of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. Here was one to teach in brass and iron, but none to teach the good knowledge of the Lord. Here were devices, how to be rich and how to be mighty and how to be merry, but nothing of God. Success in a society does not equal goodness. Success in a society does not, however you define that success, uh, we can define it as progress, we can define it as movement, as development, whatever. All of that can be achieved, as good as it is, alongside of immorality. We know this in our own culture. We know this in history. We've seen this if you've studied history at all. You don't have to look back far. far. I mean, Nazi Germany was a progressive culture. It was, had the height, at its height, uh, culture, uh, technology, um, material affluence, all the while murdering and imprisoning millions. Um, I'm not beating up on Nazi Germany, right? I mean, look at our own time. What is history going to say about us and the things that we pursue? We're not immune to this. We need to consider our own hearts in this regard. The advancements in Cain's line of descendants was progress in man's eyes, but it led to no real hope or deliverance for man's greatest problem, his own heart, his sin. That's what we have to understand there. The, the, the last thing about him is this poem that I've mentioned. It's, it's this awful poem. You know, Cain, e- even though Cain, I mean, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They blamed everybody else, but they owned what they did. They did say, I ate the fruit. Cain comes along. He sins. He totally lies. I don't know where my brother is. I don't know what you're talking about. Am I my brother's keeper? Deflects and then just hardens his heart, hardens his heart. But when God punishes him, when God comes after him, he uh, turns to the self-pity, you know, it's too much, I can't handle it. God continues to show mercy on him. Well, Lamech is so far beyond that in terms of just the degradation of his own sin and his own life. He has no fear for God at all. He not only practices violence, we see in this poem, but he glories in it. 
He is enjoying it. Again, I think of Wild West movies and those bad guys, the worst of those bad guys who did this kind of thing, who gloried in killing and hurting and wounding others. Someone had simply hit him and he killed him. That's what he's saying. Somebody hit me and I killed him. And then he goes on to say that the revenge was going to be his own. And it was going to go far beyond what God had promised Cain, which is to say, God, you're nothing compared to what I'm going to do. Your vengeance is nothing compared to what I'm going to show. That's what Lamech is saying. And this whole 70 times 7, again, 7 is a a number of completeness in in Hebrew thought and language. So to add the 70 times 7 was to say it's just going to blow your mind. A bounding proportion. You can't even count how bad this is going to be. You know, this is the same phrase that Jesus used when Peter came to him and said, Lord, how how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother when he sins against me? Should I forgive him seven times? (laughs) Oh, thanks, Peter. (laughs) Uh, That's how we all think, right? I mean, seven's a lot. You know, if somebody, you know, what's the thing? Um, Shame on you, do, you know, wrong me once, shame on you, wrong me twice, shame on me kind of thing. That's the way that we function and we feel. Peter's going all the way out to seven. That's pretty far down, right? And Jesus comes back to him and says, no, 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 70 times seven. In other words, your forgiveness is supposed to be limitless. You don't count up. You don't keep regard for forgiving. You continue to forgive because you have been forgiven greatly. Well, in the same way, Lamech is taking that same thought and process and applying it. He is dismantling law and order. He's taking all power and authority and trying to bring it in his own hands. This is the fruit of the line of the serpent. Do you remember the, 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 the two, two, two lines, two promises that were given to the seed of the serpent, to the seed of the woman? This is the fruit of the seed of the serpent. Cain and Lamech and all of these generations in between and what sin does and where it takes us. It's carrying out that prophecy. It's a sad outcome for Cain's line. One writer says, Not only does violence prevail in his world, but it is precisely in deeds of violence that this generation glories. The very qualities that are ethically reprehensible and are hateful in the sight of the Lord are esteemed in the eyes of man. What he said there, Paul says in Philippians 3.18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Two ways to live, the fruit of the seed of the serpent and the fruit of the seed of the woman, the promise, the hope, the glory that would come in a redeemer. This was the line of Cain, and ironically, this is the end of the story for them. We're going to shift gears now. We're going to start looking at the, the, the seed, the promise. And this is the line of Seth. Thankfully, the story's not over. The murder of Cain did not thwart God's plan. God is not in heaven wringing his hands in worry, wondering what he's going to do. Verse 25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. The author is taking us back in time. He's given us this compressed glimpse of the line of Cain. He's now coming back, and he's showing us the line of Abel. And isn't it interesting that that Eve's articulation of her faith is even just a little more refined here than it was when Cain was born, and she said, okay, I thank the Lord that, you know, with his help, I now have a man 
That's what she called him. She didn't even call him a baby. There was, was the first one. What do you call this thing? This little slimy, wriggling thing that's you know, here now. and uh, He looks a lot like his dad. It's a man, and that's what she called him. Now she, she understands a little bit more, and her faith is a little more expressed that God has appointed this one. And so she gives him that name Seth, which literally means appointed, that God has appointed this one because she knew now the promise isn't going to come through Abel. He's gone. And the promise isn't going to come through Cain as a murderer. It's going to come through now, through, through uh, Seth, through this line. God's economy is not man's economy. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And the story continues in verse 26. To Seth also was born a son and called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So it would be through Seth's line that we see the genealogies in the Gospels come, that this would be the line of the promised one. It's interesting that they began to call upon the name of the Lord. The author switches from Elohim to Yahweh here. There's this personal, connectional, the, the imminent God, the close God, the one who is with us, the one who is near. It's noteworthy that what Enosh means is frail or weak or faint. The author here is contrasting the two different lines. The line of Cain that's characterized by brazenness and disdain for God. Here, in the economy of God's kingdom, the weak are made strong, the meek inherit the earth, the foolishness of the cross is the power of God to save. So it's in the line of weakness, what appears to man as faintness. This should give us great comfort. Again, we're told to believe in ourselves, and we can psych ourselves up and say, I'm really good, I'm really great, I can do this, and so forth. But we know deep down inside that there's weakness and that it's just all a lot of hype. Look who God uses. The world's not going to tell you to glory in your weakness. But the gospel comes and says, hey, glory in your weakness. Because in your weakness, you're made strong. In your weakness, Jesus is glorified. In your weakness, his might is put on display. This is how God's word. This is the economy of the kingdom. The line of Cain built a city of man, and the line of Seth joins into the city of God, calling on his name. The contrast here between the efforts of man and faith in God is, is tremendous. I hope that you see it here. The kingdom of God is never portrayed through the accomplishments of man. It's always through faith in God as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, what is our modern church characterized by today? Man's efforts and success. You go to any church growth conference, you look at all the books that are out there and being read and being held and you know, marketing, get it out there, numbers, do this, do that. It's all about man's efforts. What we ought to be marked by is faith in God, trusting Him to do what He will do. And certainly working and laboring and striving, but in faith in Him. One scholar argues that the language here is actually not so much about their calling on the name of the Lord because the word calling is actually in the passive tense. It's rather the idea that God is placing His name on His people. That they, are not, they, they would be calling on Him, but the real mark, the real action is not so much them calling on Him, but actually Him calling on them. Isn't that the way God works? He puts His mark on us and we become His children. So here you have children who are called by God's name. They're called by the name of Yahweh. The covenant is proving true. 
And this is the line that you have been born into spiritually. You are in this line, the line of promise, the line of hope. In 1 Peter, Peter says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who you are. That's where you've been called. If you're in Christ, that's where you are and belong. Our primary identity is never in any kind of human understanding. It is in Christ alone. And therefore, our hope is not in our achievements. Thankfully, it's not in our achievements. Even if you think you've achieved many great things, there's always someone who's achieved more. What are you going to be measured by? You're going to be compared to them? I mean, that's what we do. We come, we pick the lowest common denominator and say, I'm not that bad, or I'm better than this person. That's how we measure. But is that how God's going to measure? No. We would never measure up. We would be hopeless standing before Him. It's only in Christ, credited with His righteousness, that we can stand before God. Think of all the advancements. They're wonderful technology, medicine, humanitarian aid, the wonderful things that are happening around the world, things that we can celebrate, even be a part of, but they don't save. They don't change hearts. They don't give new life. Only the gospel can do that. We need a savior. We don't need a hand up. We need a new heart and a new life, and that's what the gospel is. It is only in the name of Jesus that one can be saved. God sent his son, born of the seed of the woman, in the line of Seth, according to his promise that he made in Genesis 3.15. And Jesus came as the second Adam to save us not only from uh, the, the sins of our father that we inherited, but from our actual sins, the things that we have done, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have only to believe, only to put our trust and our faith in this one, Jesus, to rest in his finished work and find salvation for our souls. The outworking of this then, for we who are in Christ, is that we get to, what does First Peter say? Proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we do this as we walk in faith and repentance. Every moment of every day, we are faced with these two ways to live. Now, you can look at this a couple different ways, and I've, I've spoken of it as we've been born. Those of us who are in Christ are in this lineage. We're in the line, the line of promise, the line of hope. No, nothing can take you out of that. But as we are in this gospel gap in between the ascension of Christ and His return, as we wait for Christ to return, we're still, we, we still battle sin, don't we? And so in a sense... Even though we can't lose our salvation, hear me out. Once there's no, no one can pluck you from his hand, okay? But we still battle the, the sin that's in our own body. And it's this choice that we, that we face on a daily basis of two ways to live. That I'm either going to listen to my own heart or I'm going to listen to God's word. I'm either going to follow my own lust or I'm going to walk in faith and repentance. So this is where it comes down. It's the rubber meets the road. When I pull out of here, on US 1, and that person in the left lane won't get out of my way. And the anger starts to brew up in my heart, and I forget that I'm the preacher, as the kids remind me all the time. Dad, you can't do that. You're a pastor. Okay, all the way to the discussion you're going to have with your spouse this afternoon, to the working relationship that you're going to face at work tomorrow, to the challenge that you're facing in your finances, to whatever it is, this is where the rubber meets the road. Am I going to respond in faith and repentance? God, 
all of your ways, you, 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 you lead me in all of your ways. Everything that's before me is by your hand. Nothing can surprise you. So whatever's happening here, this is for me. It's for my good. It's for your glory. Or am I going to respond in anxiety or fear or depression and throw it all away? Those are the choices that are before us. So today, my prayer is that we would be filled with the hope that we are the children of the king, that we are in his kingdom. And as children of the king, we are entitled to all the benefits of sonship and daughtership, right? We, have, we are royalty because of what Christ has done so that we can be content and full of peace no matter what tomorrow holds, no matter what happens this afternoon. And we can say with confidence that we know that God has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. That we can say with surety, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can anyone do to me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we consider your word today, that deep down in our hearts you would ring out the doubt, that you would vacate it for those who are not yet in Christ, that you would call them to gospel repentance and faith. And for us who are in Christ, that you would do the same, Lord, that we would believe what we've said we believe, what we, what we profess that we believe, that with assurance we would walk in faith and repentance, that you would wring out that doubt that would cause us to despair and listen to the own, our own voice inside of us, that would lead us toward uh, anger or exhaustion and, and, and anxiety. Lord, would you call us to lift our eyes up and cause us to see Jesus for all he is and all he has done for us, that we would with great assurance walk in this way that you have called us, knowing that you are faithful, that you will accomplish all that you have said you will do. Give us the faith that we need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.